Welcome to Goodfellow Podcasts. This episode is kindly supported by Pharmac New Zealand. I'm Louise Kugler, a General Practitioner, and today I have the pleasure of talking to Dr Linda Bryant about a dangerous drug trio known as the Triple Whammy and its implications in general practice. Dr Bryant is a clinical and prescribing pharmacist working at both Newton Union Health Service and Pori Rua Union Health Service in Wellington. Linda teaches postgraduate clinical pharmacy students and is passionate about optimization and individualizations of medicines therapy. Linda is chair of the Clinical Advisory Pharmacists Association and she is currently on the Medicines Adverse Reactions Committee for MedSafe. Welcome, Linda. Great, thanks. Hi, Louise. I wonder if we could start by defining exactly what is the triple whammy. Right, okay, so it's had a lot of press lately and it's the combination of an ACE inhibitor or an angiotensin II receptor antagonist, which is your candesartan or losartan, plus a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory or a COX-2 inhibitor, and the final one in that triple whammy is the diuretic. And so putting all this together, it's the combination that increases the risk of renal impairment or renal failure. So what is it about this group of medicines that increases the risk of renal failure? Right. Um, I guess we're going to have to have a bit of a revision here, um, and being a pharmacist. So if just recalling that urine's produced by glomerular filtration, and that depends on the maintenance of a high perfusion pressure, and so adequate renal blood flow. If we look at the renal prostaglandins, they're vasodilators, so they're maintaining the blood flow through the preglomerular arterioles. When we use the non-steroidals, they inhibit these prostaglandins, therefore contraction, and we've got reduced blood flow to the glomerulus. Now, if the perfusion pressure falls too low, um, then the post-glomerular arterioles are activated, and this is actually mediated by the angiotensin II. As the pressure floor falls, the post-glomerular arterioles are constricted in order to um, increase the pressure and so increase the flow. Then, of course, if we use the ACE inhibitors or angiotensin II antagonists, they cause vasodilation of these effluent arterioles. Then we get reduced pressure in the glomerulus and again resulting in further renal impairment. Now, in you know, people like you and I, who are pretty normal people and healthy, um, we don't really notice that's an effect. But in people with pre-existing or moderate severe renal impairment, this constriction of inflow by the non-steroidals plus vasodilation and so increased outflow by the ACE inhibitors, angiotensin II antagonists, has the accumulative effect of reducing renal blood flow. And then on top of this, it's compounded when we add in a diuretic, which generates some um, dehydration. So. Um, sorry, a bit of a complex one, but it's worth knowing what's actually happening in the kidneys that causes our problem. So why do we need to worry about this, and how problematic is it in everyday clinical practice? Oh yes, that's definitely the burning question. And we actually have a lot of problems with quantification of this mm. because of the risk factors. Um, you know, plus, what's happened is many of the studies have been based on hospitalisation around actual acute kidney injury. Um, and so I guess what they've found is the risk is about 30% uh, greater than if you're using just two of the agents, so if you're using three rather than two. And there was a very nice study that's been sort of around that if people were on just the dual therapy of a non-steroidal plus the ACE inhibitor or a non-steroidal plus diuretic, so duplicate therapy, mm -hmm. 
The number needed to harm was over 300, but as soon as you put the three agents together, the number needed to harm comparatively was 160. Now that's possibly a little bit conservative just because of what they, they did in the study, and there have been a lot of extra um, hospitalizations with the triple therapy. As I said, the difference in risk is likely due to the different risk factors in the studies. CALM itself has had about five specific reports in the last five years, but I think we'll find that that's really likely to under-reporting. Yeah, we expect people to get um, you know, renal impairment, say, on a non-steroidal, so they just don't report it. That's a very good point, actually. Under-reporting is yeah. problematic, isn't it? Would you be able to outline the red flags that help identify those people who are at greater risk of renal problems? Fairly immediately the obvious ones are going to be those with impaired renal function. And I must admit this term, impaired renal function. So getting a bit more specific, you're starting to look at people with creatinine clearance sort of less than 40, uh, 50 to 60 mils per minute. But remembering that when you look at the eGFR, mm -hmm. that's standardised in terms of you know, 1.73 metres squared. So we have to make allowance for that for people who have got different body weights. So for older people in particular, it's worth calculating the actual creatinine clearance because eGFR will overestimate actual body weight, um, renal function. So yep, in the older people, especially if they're frail, they're going to be you know, a red flag when you're looking at that. The other sort of at-risk population includes people with diabetes particularly if they have microalbinuria, because that's early signs, and people with a, a history of interstitial nephritis, you know, that would be an absolute contraindication to using a non-steroidal. And what we're finding now in New Zealand is there's a lot more concern about our Maori and Pacific people, mm. because they've got an increased propensity to renal impairment that we're certainly identifying. Um, and add to that, if they've got diabetes, it becomes a problem. Now, we're not sure there's probably some pathological reason for their propensity to renal impairment, but it's, it's a concern. And if we have a look at the Health Safety Quality Commission's Atlas of Healthcare Variation, um, it's actually seeing that the rate of the triple whammy prescribed for Māori and Pacific is 4%, and then if it's for Asian people, it's 1.2%, and for others, so primarily European, it's 3.2%. So I think we do have to be rather concerned about, for Māori and Pacific, that we're using this combination and they're already at risk. Mm. I mean, obviously the other ones like heart failure or liver dysfunction, um, that'd be a contraindication to the non-steroidal anyhow. Older people seem to be a particularly vulnerable group to the trippy-whammy combination. What do we need to consider when we're prescribing to this group? So looking at that, remembering also they're a little bit more prone to dehydration, um, so we'd be a little bit concerned about that. So the first step you'd look at is, is this combination really necessary? Uh, and generally because non-steroidals have a lot of other adverse effects in the elderly, that would be the first medicine you'd consider, do we really need the non-steroidal? on this. You'd look at other options, so I know you know, people have probably tried paracetamol already. There's the topical non-steroidal that could be used, although that's unfunded, or a special authority for capsaicin um, cream would be alternatives. Uh, unfortunately, you know, opiates can be just as problematic as well, so you might steer clear of that. Which then means that if you really do need a non-steroidal, and that's going to be the most suitable, and you've looked at the risks, the first thing is to use a low dose and steering clear of the 
SR formulations is really important because they can build up quite quickly. So you might look at just naproxen 250 milligrams a day, um, so that's sort of low dose, half a tablet twice a day. Uh, diclofenac, you might look at 25 milligrams twice a day, Celecox at 100. So that would be sort of the doses that we're thinking about, don't let people get up to high doses. Um, you'd perhaps look at paracetamol as a non-steroidal um, sparing effect. Um, just as an aside, again perhaps thinking for Māori and Pacific, it's very easy for this population when they get gout to end up on much higher doses of non-steroidals. It's 75 milligrams up to twice a day. That's, that's not a good, good look for the mm. people that we're worried about. And so in these people you'd use the alternative of prednisone for their gout, so 0.5 milligrams per kilogram, um, using that for gout. Um, if Going back to the choices, again, if you're using a thiazide for blood pressure, then switch to another blood pressure-lowering agent if you can. Stress to the person about um, maintaining hydration. Older people lose their thirst um, reflex, so you might have to specifically tell them to drink um, water during the day. And also when those people are unwell, if there's vomiting, diarrhoea, then you're going to have to give clear instructions and a plan because they're going to end up a bit more dehydrated. And then, of course, checking renal function. This might be the price when you're negotiating with the person. The price to pay is they're going to have to commit to having their renal function uh, monitored more frequently. Thank you, Linda. There's some great points there. So if we were prescribing the triple whammy, how should we be monitoring our patients? Right. Well, the, the first thing is that the greatest risk really is at the start of therapy. Um, so hopefully you, you know, people will have the baseline in terms of sodium, potassium, renal function um, and their weight. So then the next step is actually thinking about um, when to do the, the sort of monitoring. Um, when we usually start an ACE inhibitor or angiotensin 2 antagonist, we're a little bit tolerant about when the serum creatinine goes up, and we might accept a 30% increase. Now, if you are using uh, the triple whammy, that sort of tolerance is not acceptable. We really do have to take action as soon as we see the um, serum creatinine going up. Okay, so we're looking at, at onset. Checking renal function in seven to 10 days is really important, as well as warning the person about possible symptoms, you know, reduced renal um, urinary output and that sort of thing. Um, and do this for all people on the triple whammy, not just older ones. Then repeat the serum creatinine and renal function in three to four weeks, particularly if you see that it's trending. Um, and any trend going down, then it's time to take some action um, on that. So a lot will depend on the clinical environment and the context, but generally creatinine's going up, then um, you should do something. Although on a, a side, when you're asking people to get their um, renal function checked, make sure that they're well hydrated. Uh, serum creatinine is extremely variable and does depend on hydration status, as well as a few other things like what they've eaten. So just to get consistency, make sure that they have a couple of good glasses of water a few hours before they have their, um, their blood test for renal function. What clinical signs or symptoms would the person develop if renal insufficiency occurs in a secondary to the triple whammy? Yeah, unfortunately, um, with uh, you know, kidney injury, particularly acute, the symptoms are somewhat um, subtle in, that in the early stages. So you'd be looking for volume depletion if they're sort of getting dry mucus, so the person might complain of dry mouth, tachycardia, um, 
absolute or postural hypotension as it's going down. I mean, if you're in the practice, you might look for a low JVP, uh, not that patients are going to look for that. Later on, you know, there'll be the usual things of shortness of breath, nausea, fatigue, decreased urine output, leg swelling or confusion. Uh, it's getting pretty bad by that stage, though. We'd like to pick up earlier. How do we manage triple whammy-induced renal impairment, Linda? Right. Obviously, the first one is stop the drugs. Initially, stop all of them, I think, would be the main thing. And also any other nephrotoxic drugs that uh, people might be on, you know, leaving to mind perhaps lithium, but then we'd not be likely to be using lithium in a non-steroidal. But any other nephrotoxic drug uh, would be what you'd stop. Uh, then there's usually recovery, at which point you could start reintroducing the drugs. Um, normally that's going to be, say, the ACE inhibitor or the thiazide. Don't start the non-steroidal again, I think, would be the uh, main thing. Make sure the person's well hydrated um, and that. So it sounds quite easy, but there have been deaths and uh, temporary renal, renal dialysis required. And those people that do suffer the acute kidney injury are predisposed to more chronic disease. So there is a, a long-term effect. Um, so yeah, early intervention is quite a major what advice should we give to our patients when prescribing this combination of medicines? Right, so pretty much informed consent because we are giving them something that's got hazards that we know about. So first of all, explaining the, the risk, and as I'd mentioned, sort of negotiating that they're going to require extra monitoring. Are they going to be willing to commit to this as well? Make sure that they don't take more non-steroidal than is prescribed. So it's very tempting for them to take another tablet or so. So give them a, an absolute limit as to what they can do to on the label, like take no more than two tablets a day, something like that. So that really reminds them. Avoid dehydration. Uh, if they feel sick, anything like that, vomiting, um, fever, make sure they come back and see their doctor. Okay, Don't just sort of say, I'm going to take myself to bed. Uh, Considering about 20% of people take a non-steroidal over-the-counter and don't tell their GP, really emphasise you know, not to take the non-steroidal from over-the-counter. And there is a handout, I believe, from Safer um, Rx, Safer Prescribing, and the NZF also has some information in there. Yes, there's links to those handouts on our webpage. Oh, good. So, Linda, is there anything else we should discuss today? Right, there is uh, just one thing... Um, because out there at the moment, fairly recently, we've had the precision study, which was looking at salicoxib versus naproxen versus ibuprofen. And sort of in the bottom there, there was a little bit of an indication that they're implying that salicoxib didn't have the problems and was safer in renal impairment compared to ibuprofen. So just to sort of make a comment on that is the dose equivalence. So in that one, salicoxib only went up to 200 milligrams a day. Uh, naproxen was used at about 1,000 milligrams a day, or 850 to 1,000 milligrams a day, and ibuprofen was 2,000 milligrams a day. So we're not going to be using those sort of doses. So I don't think there's really any advantage in using a COX-2 inhibitor when it comes to renal safety. They're all pretty much going to be the same. So to conclude this podcast, Linda, what would your take-home messages be for our listeners? Right. Okay. Well, the first one, is the combination really necessary? You know, what are the alternatives? And acknowledge the risks and benefits of the other medicines that you might use. Generally, the non-steroidal and the COX-2 inhibitors are probably the driver of the risk. So they're the ones you'd be most concerned that's usually being added. 
The at-risk population are the older people, those that become dehydrated, those with existing renal impairments, so we're calling that, remember, between you know, less than 50 to 60 mils per minute, calculate creatinine clearance. Um, don't use in people with a history of interstitial nephritis. The next one is the importance to monitor, and I understand that that's difficult for patients because it's an inconvenience, but we do have to monitor in the first week and four weeks. That's part of their commitment to having the, the therapy and make sure that they're hydrated when they go for that test. Picking up the reduced um, renal function early is important and stopping the non-steroidal in particular, but really reporting to CALM would be really helpful because we want to get primary care data and not just the secondary care data when it's a little bit late. So reporting to CALM, please, is really important. And then just making sure when you discuss with the person so they're informed not to take the over-the-counter non-steroidals, um, definitely not. Be clear with the person that they should not take more than the prescribed dosage, including that on the label is helpful. Um, that there are risks, and so extra blood monitoring, um, blood test monitoring is required. And for them to be aware of the symptoms, really, or signs of reduced renal function, and what action to take, and not to get dehydrated. And I guess, oh, I guess the other thing we should mention is that I think BPAC will be coming out with an article on this soon as well. Yes, yes, that in a prescribing report and audit, so watch this space. Thank you, Linda. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you today. If you're a New Zealand GP and would like to claim CME points for listening to this podcast, please fill in the Reflection of Learning form found on our webpage, goodfellow.org. Thank you for listening.